Lately, my son Alex and I have been comparing our dreams when we wake up in the morning. And I can rarely remember my dreams two seconds after I wake up. But a few weeks ago, Alex told of a story uh, where he was cleaning the house with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> awesome. And uh, oh, and the hose broke loose and somehow sucked out an eyeball uh, just, just out of his socket. And then uh, he went to his mama to have her patch it back up. That was good. And I remembered that morning a part of a dream where he and I had been trying to turn our Acura sedan around uh, on an increasingly small road. And uh, we, we uh, ended up on this motocross track and, and rode through that. Um, the car did fine on the way through, but then on the, on the way back, I just uh, shrank the car down to like briefcase size and, and carried it back by its handle through the motocross track. And then we discussed whether or not this track was good for our motorbike. Mm, some deep stuff in there. I know. <laughs> really, really deep stuff. Sometimes I wake up praying. Sometimes I wake you know, There's all sorts of different dream experiences. Um, but when, it, when Peter, in our passage today, when Peter is walked out of prison by an angel, the angel slaps him at least once. Um, and, and then after Peter is pinching himself a few times, he realizes, I'm actually awake. And I'm actually, this is happening to me right now. This was no dream. Uh, he was not waking up. He was fully awake. And, and this is how it started. We, we looked at this back in December um, Acts 12, 1 through 5, we'll just read it briefly. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jewish leaders, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So 16 guys guarding him, soldiers. Our passage today starts in Acts 12, verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. This is all good advice. If an angel tells you to do these things, you just do them. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. But when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. Just kind of like the shopping store, shopping market stores, right? Just, whoa, look at that. They went out along the street. Immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now we're at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. 
So we're, we're naming this guy named Mark, his mother, Mary. Um, Mark is going to show up later in the book of Acts, and he's, we've seen him before as well. In fact, the African church celebrates this family, especially John Mark, as he was likely from North Africa, Cyrene in Libya to be more precise. And he's credited with being the evangelist that started the church in Alexandria, Egypt. Yeah, it's pretty cool. They have a very big heritage um, for the African memory of Mark. A thousand years later, his bones were rescued, some would say stolen, uh, from Alexandria in a church there by Venetian traders. Uh, and they brought him to Venice to authorize and legitimize, you know, the, the current ruler, but also to establish what is now St. Mark's Basilica in Venice. I don't know if you've seen images of this. Heather and I had the opportunity to visit Venice a decade ago and enjoyed a tour of some of the amazing gilded structure. Just, just an amazing place. Her grandma had encouraged us to see uh, Venice before it sank into the ocean. And uh, high tides have certainly been a problem, especially in the last few years, um, washing that place out. But John Mark's home, or rather his mother Mary's house, in Jerusalem was an important church gathering place. Some say that this is the upper room, the upper room, where they had the Last Supper and, and where the 120 gathered, the, those who were faithful to Jesus but still expecting the Holy Spirit had gathered on the day of Pentecost. So this is that home, a very important home that, that Peter knew well. So he must have found his way in through the back alleys <laughs> to this house that he knew so very well. Um, and, and when Peter knocked at the door, at the door of the gateway, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but she ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. Excuse me, what is going through the mind of the church that says, oh, it's just Peter's angel out there. You don't need to let him in. I think that's just a little too weird for me to pass by and leave alone, don't you think? Can you indulge me a little bit here? Uh, I guess if he's an angel, then he doesn't need anybody to open the gate, right? He'll just come in when he wants to, right? Wow, but this is an interesting worldview. Let's pause and think about that. The early church believed in angels, you know, God sent spiritual messengers that ministered to the saints. They believed that angels would even sometimes appear as a person's double in some circumstances. You know, oh, no, that's not Peter, that's just his angel. It just sounds like him because it's his double. Interesting. But he brings up this whole question of, like, are guardian angels real? Is that, is that really even a thing? Does God use that even maybe today is the question. Well, Jesus would certainly agree that guardian angels were real. Um, Matthew 18, verse 10, Jesus says, um, See that you do not despise one of these little kids. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Seems to suggest that, that these children have angels representing them before God. 
It's an interesting, interesting thought. We need to put that in our mindset. Um, our family's had some experience with, with angels. Um, Maria has the story of, of, of an angel protecting her when she fell out of a van and onto the gas station um, ground. And um, her report was, oh, uh, um, an, somebody ca caught me and set me down gently on the ground when I fell, you know? Wow. Okay. Um, let's let's just keep pressing on, though, right? Let's just keep thinking about angels. Think about how God wants to do that. Um, let me just keep reading the passage. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that, that Peter was standing at the gate. She's excited. This is amazing. They said to her, "You're out of your mind," but she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying it's his angel, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. <laughs> this, is, this is really an interesting picture, and you kind of wonder, why tell this story? What is the deal with that? But one of the questions that comes up is, you know, should we be surprised when our prayers are answered? Should, should we be surprised, or should we say, yeah, that's, that's what I prayed for? Um, yeah, it tells us something about uh, prayer, huh? Well, they were amazed, uh, even though a jailbreak for the apostles had already happened. We see this in Acts chapter 5. God had done the miraculous before with a prison escape to send them back, the apostles back, to preach to the people. Remember Acts chapter 5, 17 through 21, the um, high priest and the Sadducees are filled with jealousy. They arrest the, the apostles and put him into public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought him out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the word to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Right? So they just they just, okay, let's get back to it. This is apparently what God wants. So they they've had an experience like this before. Should they not have expected that their prayers would be answered? Well, it's true that not all prayers are answered. And certainly not the way we want all the time. Maybe yeah, I know that's your experience. I, I absolutely know it's yours and it's mine too. I mean, in this case, James was executed. And they certainly weren't excited about that. That's the brother of John. So prayer is a battle, isn't it? It's a battle. How do I keep my hope in God as my rock-solid foundation when all around me seems to flex and sway and bend and even break. I want to come back to that very real struggle in a bit. Uh, but let's just think about how cool it is that this story is in the Bible itself. This isn't the kind of story you would write if you were trying to impress people about how amazing the church was. They just knew and they believed and then they prayed Peter out of jail and they said, yeah, we knew it. And it's actually the kind of story that could be written about your prayer life and my prayer life, I'm sure. Tom Wright says it this way. He says, Luke is allowing us to see the early church for a moment, not as a bunch of great heroes and heroines of the faith, but as the same kind of muddled, half-believing, faith one minute and doubt the next sort of people as most Christians we all know. He says, partly I find it comforting because it would be easy for skeptical thinkers to dismiss the story of Peter's release from jail as a pious legend. 
except for the fact that nobody constructing a pious legend out of thin air would have made up this ridiculous little story of Rhoda and the praying but hopeless church. It has the ring of truth, ordinary truth, down-to-earth truth, at the moment that it is telling us something truly extraordinary and heaven-on-earth-ish. <laughs> so, so doesn't it have the ring of authenticity? Why would you tell the story about Rhoda and the silliness and what if you're trying to establish a legend about Peter's escape from jail, right? It has the ring of truth, very down-to-earth, but also, as he says, heaven-on-earth-ish. It's telling of this the kingdom coming and, and God's interaction on earth, the God-man, Jesus. Verse 17, But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, Peter described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Um, tell James, the brother of Jesus. Probably, hey, you're it. I need you to be in charge. Right? I, I've got I've to go. It was too controversial for Peter to keep preaching in Jerusalem. And as a wanted man, uh, he, he couldn't just travel freely. And so he left for another place, wherever that is. Some current scholars still side with the church tradition that says he went to Rome and, and started the church there. And Luke is being careful not to expose his location as a wanted man you know, in this letter to Rome. We don't, we don't know this for certain, but that's maybe one explanation where Peter goes for a bit. Uh, Tom Wright says, Peter can see that someone else is going to have to take over the leadership role that he had had. And though nothing has been said about this, it appears that James has been emerging as the obvious candidate. Okay, the last little bit of this passage, um, verse 18 and 19. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of, of Peter. He was next to you. He was next to you. I don't know. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries, remember the 16 guys there, and ordered that they should be put to death. It's this life for life. You are in charge of protecting. You lose your life. We see, we'll see it later in the book of Acts with a Philippian jailer, right, who says, who says wow, if, they, if you've all escaped, then my life is forfeit. So that's a very difficult end to this passage, but you should know that Herod's God complex will bring an end to him. Um, just in case you think that those who target Jesus's people get off easy um, and those that live in this kind of, of wickedness. But I want to bring us back to the praying church, the anxious, expecting church that became amazed when their prayers were, were answered. Why did Luke show a befuddled church amazed at the answers to their prayers? Well, as I said before, prayer is a difficult, it's the battle, right? It's a difficult task for a Christian. In fact, some would say it is the task for a Christian. And I understand that the church's confusion there, and, and I experience the same kind of thing. And some of you have given up on praying because it's just too confusing, too disappointing, why should I pray when God's going to do what he wants anyway? What should I pray? I, I don't want to get in the way. And besides, isn't prayer just about trying to get my way? So, uh, well, 
as I see it, there are two ends of the spectrum in Christianity today, and I don't want us to fall prey to either of them. On, on the fatalistic side, you know, God's going to do what he's going to do, so why bother him? On the, what I'll call the opportunistic side, well, he's got to do what I tell him to do. He's obligated. The fatalistic side is the school of hard knocks. The opportunistic side just keeps knocking, says, keep knocking harder. You'll, be, you'll get it. But neither of these take into account our location in time, the state of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It's been launched, but it's not complete and full yet. The fatalistic side says, well, we're waiting for the kingdom to come from heaven. That's eternity. That's heaven. The opportunistic side says the kingdom is already coming full. It's already here. Um, eschatology, which you might know is the study of last things. So this would be the difference between an under-realized eschatology, meaning not made real yet. We haven't realized the eschatology and an over-realized eschatology. The fatalistic side says, just take your lumps. Life's hard. You know? The opportunistic side says, just name it and claim it. It's all yours. You want gold? You got gold. But you know this in your heart, right? We live in the time between the launch of the heaven and earth kingdom and its completeness or consummation. Why else would Jesus tell us to pray the on earth as it is in heaven prayer unless our lives are supposed to be bringing it about in this middle space, bringing heaven's light to earth's darkness? So I'll say this for me. I want to live in a way that anticipates God's blessing, provision, miraculous intervention, because I absolutely know that's what he wants to do. I want to live in such a way that I know that this is what he wants, not my wishful thinking. So I, so here, we, I don't think we can do better than to pray the Jesus prayer. In the Jesus prayer, Jesus announces his commitment, encourages us to make our commitment for his life to be dedicated to the reputation of the Father the kingdom of his father, and the desires of his father. The reputation, the kingdom, the desire. And, and as an as a application point, can you make this prayer uh, your prayer this year? Our Father in heaven, hallowed, reverenced, feared, and awed, be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Right, on earth as it is in heaven. I, I wonder, can you see how this is primary before we start to ask for what we need and what we want? Father, what do you want? What would excite you? What would make your name rise to the top of the charts? What would establish your way on earth? <laughs> if you're dedicated like Jesus was, to the reputation of the Father, the kingdom of the Father, the desires of the Father. Ask away. If that's your dedication, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then ask away. 
Because I think this is the truth here we need to just dig into. Our prayers and hopes for the future depend on this kind of dedication, this allegiance to Jesus and the way of Jesus for the glory of the Father. You see, hope for the future and our dreams for the future are grounded in who God is, his character. Our hope for the future is grounded in what God has done, his activity. So our dreams for the future need to be based in the faithfulness of God. So, are you, am I, submitted to the one who holds all things together? If so, we can ask, seek, knock, beg, pester for God to act in a way that is consistent with his character and his activity in the past. So in closing, let's just ask this question. Is it consistent? with the character and activity of God to bring revival to his church. Is that consistent? Well, then let's pray for it. God, do it again. I've seen you do it in the past. I've heard the stories of how you've worked in your church to awaken a people. Do it again. Pastor Alec Roland of Church Awakening here in the Northwest defines revival this way. He says, revival is the overwhelming sense of God's presence. Yes, God, bring that. That falls powerfully on a Christian people who have become dead and lethargic in their spiritual life. It's overwhelming sense of God's presence that falls powerfully on a Christian people who have become dead and lethargic in their spiritual life. Reviving those elements of the Christian life that God intended to be normal for his church. The normal way to be a Christian that we've been talking about. God wants to revive that. Um, and who, who does he revive? Does he revive non-Christians? No, that would be just to, to vive them. <laughs> but to revive is to take a spiritually lethargic people and awaken them again. right? To fall powerfully on them and revive those elements that God intended to be normal for his church. You know, our brothers and sisters in Haiti have been asking God for this and have been hosting revival meetings in this last year. Uh, allow me to report in, in their words, uh, Global Vision Citadel Ministries, or GVCM, hosted four revivals this year, reaching thousands of Haitians with a message of hope and love through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Revival services are the platform that gives GVCM the best opportunity to gather both believers and non-believers in the same place and let them see and feel God at work. Motivational and inspirational communicators create an environment for decisions to be made, either to reinforce the faith of the believer or guide the unbeliever to find new faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit is always there convicting and persuading people about making the right decision. Pastor Eve Prophet shares his perspective on revival. He says, when God wants to do something spectacular, he revives the spiritual leaders to galvanize a movement. As a spiritual leader during critical times, I personally feel the God's spiritual energy that the Holy Spirit instills in me as a point of contact to electrify his people. A week or two in the company of others is a time of great fellowship with God and coworkers. The benefits submerges all other times we spend dealing with the complications of so many other issues we constantly face in the ministry. In a country like Haiti, where the forces of evil seem to be vividly and constantly active, we cannot afford spiritual lethargy. I wonder, can we afford it? 
He says it is our responsibility to revive the conscience of the church in our environment and about our responsibility to help transform our neighbors with an eternal perspective. Last thing that he reports is how um, the voodoo priests have been complaining that their business is going down and they've been being put out of business during these, these revivals. Uh, the sound of the drums that used to be heard from November to January weren't heard because most of the people who practiced voodoo were busy worshiping the true God with us. And dozens of former voodoo priests have experienced freedom from the bondage of voodoo. So pretty exciting news from there. But I just want us to think for our own selves. Is spiritual lethargy uh, something we can afford? If you're dedicated to the reputation of the Father, the kingdom of his Father, the, the desire of the Father, then ask away. God, do it again. Revive your church. And, and as a point of application, just, just look at your dreams for this next year. Oh, this is what I hope for. This is what I want. This is my hope for the future. And line it up with these elements, God's reputation his kingdom, his desires. Because any, any of our dreams that aren't grounded in what God desires shouldn't be asked for in the first place. So, are my dreams, these are questions you can ask, are my dreams for the future grounded in who God is? Yeah? Then ask away. Are my dreams for the future grounded in what God has done? Yes, this is consistent with his character. Would you just pray with me at the very end of this? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, use us, your church, to bring this about. In Jesus' name, amen.